This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Well, greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Women, a Black Christian Collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk. And of course, joining me as always is the founder of The Witness, the man himself, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check verified himself, the two-time <laughs> bestseller, I got to give you accolades, brother. Jamar Tisby, what's going on, brother? Hey, listen, (laughs) folks, get y'all a co-host that gasses you up every introduction. I appreciate that, Tyler. And I have been so excited about this conversation for such a long time. And joining us, we have none other than Dr. Anthea Butler. Dr. Butler, thank you so much for joining us here on Pass the Mic. Thank you, Tyler. I guess I didn't pay you enough because I don't get gassed up like this, right? It's coming. I'm starting and then I'm, I'm getting to it. So. Well, the check, the check is in the mail. I, I get you up cash at. How about that? Cash so, Listen, that works. That works for me. Let's get straight into it because for those who are unaware or uninitiated, Dr. Anthea Butler is a guest we have been looking forward to for a long time. She is the Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's a sought-after commentator on, I got to take a deep breath to get all this out, the BBC, MSNBC, CNN, the History Channel, and PBS. She also regularly writes opinions and pieces covering religion, race, politics, and popular culture for NBC Think, Religion News Service, The Washington Post, and CNN. Uh, Her books include Women in the Church of God in Christ, Making a Sanctified World, published by the University of North Carolina Press, and the book that we're going to be talking about today, of course, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America, and Dr. Butler is also also a great Twitter follower. So if you go to Anthea Butler, at Anthea Butler, you will get some gems and some jewels (laughs) in those Twitter threads. Dr. Butler, okay. <laughs> we started you you are, I, the, the, Look, I, I can't shape you afterwards. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, whenever we talk to authors, I always want to know, what was the origin of this book? Was there a moment when you knew you had to write white evangelical racism? Yes and no. Um, the no is, I think the book has always been there in me for certain kinds of reasons. The yes is, um, it was after I wrote an op-ed, and that op-ed appeared at NBC Think in September of 2019, and it was basically titled, "Why White Evangel- No One Should Ask Why White Evangelicals Love Donald Trump. And even though this book is not really about Donald Trump, it is in the sense that I wanted people to understand what was going on behind evangelical strong support of Donald Trump. And I thought that it would be really important to set down a historical framework for that um, out of all the research and writing and teaching that I've done over the last 20 years. Yeah. So whenever we, whenever we talk about books like this, we normally talk about what you write, not how you write. Mm-hmm. And you write with such a, a one one review calls it a prophetic candor, which I, I want to steal because I think mm. it's just so that's a good helpful. word. What was writing this book like? What did it feel like? Because this reading it felt heavy, mm-hmm. but I think writing it probably. How, how do you how do you take care of yourself while you're writing about white evangelical racism? Well, when you've been experiencing it for a long time, you you've had to learn how to take care of yourself, right? So that's the right. first thing. So I think that while people might think it was hard to write the book, what was hard writing the book was that it was during the pandemic. It was, you know, basically from March to July of last year of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that had been already worked out in my mind, but the real writing was over those few months. And I think the way that I took care of myself was that I tried not to pay attention to 
a lot of the craziness that was going on then because it was like I could not pay attention to the things that Trump was saying or the kind of craziness that was happening because I was working through history. And when you're mm -hmm. working through history, you need to be present in the history and not in the present. So mm -hmm. I think that for me, that was really important. Wow. Was it did it feel cathartic at all? Like there was all this stuff pent in you and you finally got it on the page? It wasn't cathartic. I think that's really interesting to ask me that because I, that would be the, the thing that people would think. No, it was more like this you, this is who you are. Let me wow. go ahead and tell you who you are. And it wasn't cathartic. It was more like it, it was more like my professorial self. It was more mm -hmm. like, let me lay out the facts here for an argument that you need to see. And I think that for me, it wasn't important. It wasn't like a lot of people have asked me, have I been hurt? Was I angry? Whatever. I was like, no, I've just been disgusted. So basically, that's the feeling. And the, the writing was more like, let me lay this out so that people can really see this very clearly. Mm, mm, that's good. So you had you, so you, you were going to school them on some things. On yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I really want people to understand that it was like, you know, you, you could say, oh, this is just an angry black woman. Right. And I'm like, you don't get that's not my tone in this book at all. My tone in this book is very like, here you go. This is what this is. I am a measured historian. And uh what you what you want to say now, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with the book. Well, so it's interesting you you, you bring up that tone, and I think you're precisely right. That's how it reads, and uh, it's very approachable if you have an open mind that just wants to deal with facts and, and the information there. But I also think it's important for folks to know that you're not just studying this from sort of an arm's length scholarly. You know, perspective that you've had a front row seat to some of this stuff that you're writing about. So can, oh, yeah. you, can you enlighten us about your sort of personal experience with white evangelicalism? Yeah, I should just sort of tell people this because in my Twitter persona, most people know me as a Catholic, but I was evangelical for a time. I went to a, you know, a Pentecostal church. I went to, got my MA from Fuller Seminary. So I got bona fides. I'm not somebody who wasn't there. And I tell one of the stories about an experience I had at Church in the Way that was sort of a defining moment for letting people know that I, you know, had seen all of this stuff. But I also was um, a participant in some different interesting things. I was in 94, before going off to do my PhD, I went to the Pentecostal Fellowship of North America's racial reconciliation thing. So I watched um, Charles Mason washed the feet of Tom Trask, who was the wow. de a denominational leader of the Assemblies of God. I was there in Memphis wow. and saw this whole thing. I started Fuller right after 92 riots or uprisings, depending on what you want to talk about. My mentor, and, and Jamar, you know this because you're writing about him, was Bill Pinnell. And mm. I talked to Bill Pinnell during the writing of this book. And Bill Pinnell has been a good friend of mine for many years. So I'm somebody who has heard stories like his, experienced my stories, was at Fuller when George Marsden uh, released Reforming Fundamentalism. So I was there for a lot of this big stuff that happened in evangelicalism. And, you know, no Mark, no, no, all these guys. And so for me to write this book is not just about, oh, I'm going to pick on them. I know them. And mm -hmm. so I really wanted to make it clear that this was a different kind of thing that I was doing rather than, you know, just saying I'm mad at y'all. I wanted people to understand what why I'm talking about white evangelical racism. You know, the central question to me that haunts the book is given in the introduction. And you asked this question and I'll quote it. Will they, and you're referring to white evangelicals, allow racism to continue to taint their faith or will they reject it? Yet, as you point out, for some, this is being presented as a new phenomenon, mm -hmm. even though this book, you know, it shows the history that goes back for centuries. So why is it crucial to understand the depths of the history of white evangelical racism? Because evangelicals have wanted to write a story about themselves. And Jamar knows this really well. You know, it's been this nice history. We were abolitionists. We were in a temperance movement. We were against, you know, we were the ones who were doing missionary work. We were the ones that were evangelizing the gospel. We're the ones who have morality, right? And we're trying to save America. But I wanted people to see that that story, while true, there's another story that is a, an equally compelling story, an equally um, important story. 
and a story that really lends itself. And this is where, you know, people, Jamar will know what I'm talking about here. People might compare our books, but I think what I'm trying to do in my book is really show people the political aspects of this. And that's what I'm really concerned about because it's the politics of evangelicalism and how evangelicals have used morality as a shield to hide the real power that they want to gain. I also think what you did, sorry, Tyler, I just want to give you props. I also think what you did really well, and you actually write this in the book, is to say that racism is a feature, not a bug of evangelicalism. Like that's a critical understanding that from a scholarly and a historical perspective, I think has been lacking or at least tepid in, in, in much of the writing on U.S. evangelicalism. So I'm very appreciative that you called that out. Thank you, because I think, you know, evangelicals don't want to see this about themselves, but but it's not just evangelicals. Right. It's also other people who write about evangelicalism because they're just so used to thinking about evangelicalism as being white that they don't even consider that it could be racist in other kinds of ways and and racist to black people, racist to Asians, racist to everybody except white men. And so I think that's really important. When I when I came up with that phrase, I thought, wow, people are going to be mad at me. But I thought I'm keeping it anyway because it's good. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. You talked earlier about this social and political power. And I want to read another portion um, in the opening chapter. You say the 19th century, and I'm quoting here, racial practices of white supremacy and violence would affect how 20th century evangelical leadership emerge in, or excuse me, engage African-Americans in their forthcoming quest for civil rights, justice and full citizenship. Most of all, they would allow white evangelical leaders to justify their decision to keep the reins of religious, social, and political power in white men's hands. Mm. Now, that's a searing portion, and that really leaped out at me as I was reading the book. This power in white men's hands. How important is it for this white evangelical uh, control? How how much, how important has it been for white evangelicals to, to maintain that power? And how has that produced some of the racism that we've seen over the course of history? It's, it's really crucial because in, in a lot of different ways, and I mean, I think this is where, you know, there's a constellation of books you can think about right now. So I'll just shout out Kristen Kobe's Dumay book, right. you know, Jesus and John Wayne as an example of that big kind of patriarchal kind of structure. But I think in the case that I'm talking about, I'm thinking about it in the ways in which, you know, power has been consolidated in evangelicalism. If you could think about evangelicalism in certain contexts, kinds of like buckets. You know, one bucket is the church bucket and the evangelical bucket. And I think I show that very well with people like Billy Graham, right? Because he's the big figure. Another bucket is the um, parachurch organization. So we talk about focus on the family, family research council, you know, American Family Association. What are those organizations about? Everybody on the outside thinks it's family, right? It's about family and take care of family. Well, all that is well and good, but these organizations are about putting forward political action activities. So, you know, I want to take everybody back for a minute just to give you an example about what this looks like. Back in 2012, you know, when Rick Perry was running from Texas, I'm from Texas, and they had those rallies, you know, that were religious rallies at going up to the presidency because nobody wanted to see Barack Obama, right? There was an, a, a way in which they took prayer and made it as though it was about the soul of the nation because we couldn't possibly have this black man be president again, even though he was a Christian, right? And so this is where you saw white male authority, whether it was Sam Brownback or all these other guys, come together to show a flanks of white men up against this black president, right? Who said he was a Christian, who was a practicing Christian, but nobody wanted to believe him because, of course, he was a Kenyan Muslim who didn't have his birth certificate. Right. And so this is the kind of thing that I think what I'm trying to show in all of these different decades and centuries that it has been white male political power and authority and religious authority, especially that has held this in check and held, you know, held everybody else at bay, basically. Yeah. And I love the fact that you talk about this in the context of reaction to. And, you know, we'll get into some other things uh, more recently as it relates to reaction to reaction to a black president, reaction to civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And, and when we think about this reaction, how does this have roots in in, let's say, 18, the 1800s? How does this have roots in the early 1900s 
because I think most of us think about this in the context of the moral majority. Mm-hmm. But this was a this reaction was not something that was new or just recent. It's always no. been like this. No, not at all. I mean, if we're going to talk about you know slaveholding or what you know Reverend Barber talks about slaveholding Christianity, I'd like to think about mm-hmm. it as just a continuation for the nineteenth to twentieth century of white evangelical racism. Whether mm-hmm. we're talking mm-hmm. about you know slaveholders who use um, the Bible to justify slavery, that same Bible that they talk about theologically in all of this, the same Bible that they use to de- separate denominations. So we can talk about, you know, every time the Southern Baptist says something about critical race theory, I just want to like go and say, is this you? You're the ones that left your denomination mm-hmm. back in 1845 because of slavery, because you wanted to be slaveholders. And then we get, when we, when they lose the civil war, right? What do they do? They go on to what Charles Reagan Wilson called the religion of the lost cause. And that religion of the lost cause was based on dead Confederate bodies, dead black bodies on top of you put white women sacralized as the virginal purity people. And this purity thing has gone all the way through. And then you use white men to make sure that everybody else stays in line so that white women can stay pure so that their families can stay pure. And then meanwhile, black families are vilified and they're vilified because they're not together. But why are they not together? Slavery being sold, looking for each other on the Freedmen's Bureau's newspapers. I mean, you know, Jamar knows all this when we talk like historians now. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is this is the thing. It's like these themes from the 19th century about purity and, and white women's purity and white men enforcing things that the patty rollers, right? Where we mm-hmm. can see them in the 21st century kneeling on somebody on George Floyd's neck, right? Mm-hmm. This This idea about law and order, family, how you talk about black people, how black people are not, they needed to be slaves so they could be Christians. We just saw this pop up at a group, a, a young conservative group at Baylor a few yeah. weeks ago that said it was fine. For, you know, this was this was why black people needed Christianity. You know, slavery did that for them. It's a lot of black people that think this. I want to, if you're listening to this today, you think about this. I want you to know that if you were in my class, I would give you an F. Mm. Because mm. I think there's a lot of black people right now who have embraced this kind of crazy theology and it's crazy theology. It's not right. And so I think that we have to really start looking at the 19th century as a template to the 20th and the 21st. We just kind of mm. think about all this happened in civil civil rights. I'm like, no, 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 no. It started back then. And this is why everybody right now, and I don't want to bring this up, but I am going to. It's why everybody's upset about the 1619 Project. It's because nobody wants to deal with slavery in this country and the connections between slavery and Christianity in America. Mm, It's so true. I want to get in the weeds a little bit, but I think it'll be highly intriguing for our listeners and this discussion. I want to talk about, in general, the sort of ways that white evangelicals, especially in the second half of the 20th century, deployed, strategically deployed, colorblindness, mm. black people, black mm-hmm. individuals in a way that actually bolstered their racism and white supremacy. Um, so we can start there. And then I got a more specific question about the 1970s and sort of progressive evangelicals and whatnot. But can, can you talk about, because they're going to say the right things, right? They're going to yes. say well, all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, yeah. you know, we're all made, we're all God's children, those kinds of things. But can you talk about how even that rhetoric, it didn't mm-hmm. do anything to actually advance It doesn't, change a, doesn't yeah. change a thing. I mean, what I always say to people, let me start off with the first big phrase that everybody's got to deal with. If you tell me you don't see color, you see white. Hmm. Because that's all you can see. You you see color. You just see white. And white is your operational mode of, of being in these churches. So, you know, if there's white leadership, if there's white, it's fine with you. So, you know, I'll give you an example. And I use this as a, as a way to talk about this in the book. I start talking about Billy Graham and Oral Roberts, you know, slowly integrating things. Oral Roberts integrated his television show starting in 1969 with all the singers. Billy Graham started adding singers like um, Ethel Waters and he added Andre Crouch to his um you know, revivals in the 1970s when he would do his evangelistic crusades. He had a whole slew of people, but it was a certain kind of person that he wanted. Mm. 
What he wanted was somebody to perform blackness. And I talk about this, this, this kind of Christian blackness that they suspect. And so this Christian blackness consists of a certain kind of thing. You are docile. You are, you know, um, deferential to the white person who is leading. You are allowed to be on the stage with them and you are allowed to agree with everything that they say. So, you know, a good person to think about this, although he did kind of, you know, push back at times, was Ben Kinchlow of the 700 Club. There were ways in which black people were used, and I hate to say it like this, but it's true, as props, right? I mean, they, they were part of ministries. Even Tom Skinner, who I love, ends up working with Charles Colson, you know? And, and we have to identify these things because there were benefits to people to do this stuff. But what it did was it gave all of these white male leaders a pass. What it did was it didn't give those people authority. It didn't give them power. What it did was give them visibility, but it also allowed those evangelical leaders to say, well, look, we have a black person here, but that's not leadership. That's not responsibility. That's not taking care of things. That's not being a leader in, in your own right. And so I think when we start to talk about this colorblindness, that, that's one thing. But now I want to talk about the thing that you said, Jamar, about how people say these things. Well, I don't see color. Well, we have somebody in, in, our, in our worship team and we have somebody on our prayer team and we have a mother in our church. She's wonderful. These kind of like statements that sort of and fanalize black people mm. and make them mm. not as powerful as anybody else in the congregation. They are just there for moral support and there to assuage white guilt. And I think that a lot of us mm. who have been in these congregations, I have myself been there, you know, have realized at those moments where you get the realization that, oh man, I'm just here for window dressing. That is a hard moment. That's a moment that you have to really search inside yourself and say, does God want me to do this? Is this who God called me to be? Am I just to be a foil to the white people here in this mm. interracial church? And I think that's the question. I'm not saying you can't have an interracial church. I'm just saying that the ways in which black people get used in these ministries or in these churches as a way in which to, you know, be there to give a, a sense of how do I want to say it? Um, you know, basically like, we're not racist. Look, we have a black one and that's it. It's, it's not real leadership. It's not real authority. It's not real power. Wow. It sounds like leave loud, Jamar. <laughs> I was going to say, this sounds yeah. exactly like leave loud. This is where we get into the, 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 the macro of, of podcasting and video stuff where we got to insert some of our culture. Cause I just want to pause there mm -hmm. and yeah. park there and absorb, she said, infantilize black people. Window dressing. And I'm like, woo. It's true, though. Yeah. It is. It is. And and we have so many stories that we're interacting with in this Leave Loud series yeah. about this very thing and the kind of the roots of how it goes. Have you seen in your research, in your study, or even your observation, that that is shifting, that black Christians in these churches or in these in these faith spaces are shifting away from these spaces or as the, the, the country continues to become more multiracial, is it is it a scenario of it kind of doubling down um, instead of actually changing? It's, it's interesting. I think it's a little bit of both. I'm, I'm thinking about all the articles and I know Jamar, you were uh, quoted in one, maybe the one in Washington Post about black evangelicals leaving churches. There was another one in New York Times. There's been actually a couple of the New York Times, I think. And, and what I've seen is people sort of being upset, people coming back to, you know, their original black church roots or, you know, unfortunately leaving altogether. And I think that's actually another really big thing that we have to think about is the number of black Christians who are choosing not to be in churches at all because of, of what's going on. And I think that's a huge portion of what's happening here. And I think on the part of white evangelical churches, some of them are trying. Some people are really trying to work through this, but I feel that they are not, they are afraid to respond in ways that could be positive. So, you know, there's all the talk about how are we supposed to feel about Black Lives Matter? How do we feel about critical race theory? It's all these bugs words, right? And that there's an old guard that's fighting against all of this that is making it very difficult. So, you know, I've been watching with interest to see what has happened with the Southern Baptists. And I've been looking at Dwight McKissick and going like, why were you there? I mean, did you not understand what this jig was? They gave you money to be there. And now, now you're upset with them, but you should have expected this. Everything in history tells you who exactly who these people are. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and Jamar, I know you 
talk a lot about this in your specific story. Um, and then, you you know, Dr. Butler also talks about this with William Bentley and Tom Skinner and Bill Pinnell and kind of these this this way in which black Christians have to make a decision. We have to mm-hmm. decide and we have to understand some of these tactics. Right. And I know, Jamar, you talk a lot about this. Well, I, I, I have so many questions because typically when we talk about white evangelical racism, um, we're talking about white people still. Yes. And, 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 and what I love about your work and your knowledge, Dr. Butler, is that you can talk about black people in this conversation too. Yes. So, I mean, I have a ton of questions around this. I mean, one is sort of a, a very basic question around, you know, what is the utility of the term black evangelicals? Hmm. Um, is it a thing? Is it a historically bound thing? Is it something we should still be talking about, e- even just on that sort of definitional level? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good question. It's definitely a historical thing. And, and the historical thing exists because of the racism. That's first of all, mm-hmm. you don't get black evangelicals without having to have a National Black Association of Evangelicals and all that, because they wouldn't let black folks in. So you had right. to do something, right? So that's one. The utility now is something different. And this is where it's going to hurt some folks' feelings. The utility now is a way for white evangelicals to elude the racism. Mm. Because they get to say, well, we have black evangelicals, we have Asian American evangelicals, we have these people. And so and I, and I'm going to call somebody's name out that I call out in the book. So it's not a surprise. Jim Wallace says this. And he says, you know, this is, you know, this is we just we can't all be branded with the same brush. I'm like, uh, 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 uh. you didn't care before. You didn't care about making that moniker before. You just want to say evangelical so you can count everybody. But what you don't understand is that now you're using this as a way to elide the racism. And yes, it may sound strange to talk about Jim Wallace because everybody will say, well, that's Sojourners. That's this. But even Sojourners participates in this kind of thing. And that's hard to say. That is really difficult to say where you think about, oh, this was the Progressive Evangelical Association. These are the Progressive Evangelicals. You have to actually look at everybody. You know, it's like scripture. I'm weighing this and I'm finding it wanting. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm trying to understand how everybody is complicit in this. And I think one of the people who signed my book on the back, Julie Ingersoll, was really good. She made a very good comment about evangelicalism. She said, there are ways in which people who don't have any faith at all have been complicit in American evangelicalism mm. and, and wow. have received these messages. And we have to start thinking about the ways in which we've all bought into what evangelicals have told us to do. Mm. Wow. So continuing on this track, um, you sort of, I, I would call it almost an appropriation of black evangelicals. You can say black people or black bodies, even by those who deem themselves sort of progressive evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Because in my research, it was like black evangelicals didn't neatly fit into the sort of more traditional, very conservative white evangelical mold because there was always the color line. At the same time, they didn't quite fit in the sort of progressive evangelical or or religious left in certain ways. Can you tease that out a little bit? Why, you know, you can't just firmly place, let's all black evangelicals in one of these camps or the other? Yeah, because how black evangelicals dealt with things were very different. So first of all, voting, right? They didn't go wholesale into voting for Reagan and and all of this. A lot of them were Democrats, right? And so politically, it's very easy to see how they didn't fit, you know, quite fit in. On the other hand, lots of black evangelicals, you know, are pro-life, right? And and want to not make there should be abortion. They didn't want same-sex marriage, all of these things, right? And so we saw this back in 2012, you know, and later when Oberfell happened, when same-sex marriage became the law of the land, a lot of black people were not happy with this, right? A lot of black churches, even the church that I wrote about, Church of God in Christ, they're not going for this, right? You could call coaching people evangelicals lots of different ways. But because they voted a certain way, people didn't want to consider them to be evangelicals. And that, to me, is where this comes in. Because when you have the same kind of morality standards, right? But how that morality is being used is very different. And and I think that's what's important about looking at mm. what's going on with white evangelicals versus vis-a-vis black evangelicals. 
You know, uh, Dr. Butler, you say in the book that something changed in the year 2000, that up until that point, it had been this veneer of evangelical piety and integrity that belied some of their stances. That's the reason why they had the stances that they did politically. Mm-hmm. Things changed in the year 2000. What changed in the year 2000? And why is this a, a turning point for us? Well, I think what changed is several things. Is one is, is George W. Bush. He's very interesting, as I would say, the true evangelical president, not, not just Donald Trump. Donald Trump isn't for a lot of different reasons. But I think that it's really important to think about what happened in both the 2000 election and then what happened at 9-11. Um, the 2000 election, race was deployed in a certain kind of way. They used that against McCain's adopted daughter and said that she was, um, she, how do I want to put this? She was an illegitimate black child that he had when the reality was that she was actually adopted and from India. And they used that lie to get you know, Bush to win in South Carolina. That's one. But when 9 11 happened, the Islamophobia really just picked up steam. And so for a moment, I remember people saying back then, it's like, well, it's like black people got a pass because they just shifted all the hatred to the Muslims. But what was happening was a coalescing. It wasn't just about, you know, the the Islamophobia. It was also a way in which black people were sort of co-opted into the compassionate conservatism of George W. Bush. So if we could talk about somebody from that I know from Texas, Kirby John Carwell became really an important figure during the 2000s. And now what happened to him, he's been convicted of fraud. And, and that's like, that's a huge fall. There was a, he was the man that was sort of like the point person for George W. Bush. But black churches got a lot of money in this compassionate conservatism and they were bought into the fold in a different kind of way. And I think that that was the beginning of something. But what really tipped it made everything crazy was um, Barack Obama, because his his run was a whole different ballgame. And I know Jamar's going to hop in here with a question kind of extending this idea of black evangelical men and kind of how they interacted with you know, conservative white political figures and Republicans. But I distinctly remember this whole movement of faith-based initiatives. Yes. And this was a big conversation. I mean, it was, you know, I I grew up in a Pentecostal church, non-denominational Pentecostal church, and everyone was talking about these faith-based initiatives. And there were actually scams that people ran because they were saying, Mm. oh, well, because of these Mm -hmm. faith-based initiatives, now we're going to have grant money that's going to flow into black Mm -hmm. churches. Mm -hmm. And they would scam people. And so it's just, it reminded me of that and how black evangelical men and pastors were actually complicit in advancing that that idea. Absolutely. And that's how Kirby John Caldwell did all this stuff. That's how people stole money. There were several pyramid schemes like this that people lost money from in the 2000s because of this compassionate conservatism. But it was, you know, I'd like to say that it's probably, you know, I'd have to go back and really look at it. I think it's one of the ways that George W. Bush won Ohio. In, in 20, 2004, because, you know, when you start talking about people like Rod Parsley and others who are in Ohio and those churches, that was a path to the presidency for him. If you could say you were giving out all these money to these big black churches that turned people Republican, you know, that was a way to peel them off. And I mean, in that sense, George Bush was brilliant. And what's interesting is that he has just been on in the last few weeks talking about how he still believes in compassionate conservatism, because I think he's trying to get the Republican Party back from Trump. But I don't know that that's going to happen. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Drawing again on the involvement of of black Christians in this whole propping up oftentimes of uh, white evangelical racism and American evangelical racism, 
we've learned from scholars and clergy such as Shaniqua Walker Barnes and yourself that this evangelical racism can often work itself out differently for black men as opposed to black women. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to sort of the gender dynamics of evangelical racism and feel free to be as honest as you need to be about. Uh, I'm I'm about to be really (laughs) honest here. Okay. This is a benefit for black men because this is Mm -hmm. basically where, you know, this is where I'm from. I I live in Philly right now. So I'm across two things. This is where evangelical manhood and hotepism come together. Mm -hmm. Now you see, this is because they both working on the same thing, which is, you know, women have certain roles This complementarianism. Women should be subordinate to men all of this stuff. So it doesn't really matter if you like the Muslim guy shelling shea butter or you the evangelical man saying, you know, wives be obedient to your husbands. It's the same dude. Okay. So you you may be saying God on one hand and Allah on the other, but it's the same kind of thing. Right. Mm. And so I think that black Christianity for the men and black evangelicalism in particular is really supportive of, you know, of the certain kinds of men. And so if we think about 2016 and Darren Scott or Mark Burns or all these people who became famous, it really wasn't anybody, but they became famous because Trump pumped them up. Were the only black women you saw around Donald Trump were two women whose parents were evangelists, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then who was the lead woman who did everything? Paula White. So if there's a hierarchy about who gets benefits in, in evangelicalism, it's white men, it's white women, and then black men. And then black women are nowhere in this equation because you can't even figure out how to fit in, really, because you don't fit into their purity construct because mm-hmm. you're a black woman. So obviously you just have you just not there anyway. You can you can try to do about Juanita Bottom all you want, but that's not going to work, because even in her testimony about sex, she has to admit she has sex. Right. So it already doesn't fit in with the white pair evangelical paradigm of purity. So you can't be there. And, and there's no and, and there's ways in which there you know, are black female conservatives who do it, but they don't do it in the same way. So I'll, I'll bring up somebody's name who is painful to bring up, but I'll bring her up. Candace Owen. Candace oh. Owen doesn't pretend to be like this Christian figure, which is why she makes it. Because it does, she doesn't have to be a black evangelical woman. Because if she's a black evangelical woman, it would take away so much from her. She can do what she's doing right now and make the money she's making everything because she married a rich white guy. She's saying everything that they want to hear. She's supporting whiteness in a certain kind of way. But it's not because Jesus is coming out of her mouth. And I mean, I think that's a really interesting way to sort of look wow. at this because anytime a black woman says Jesus is coming out of her mouth, then that puts you in that subservient role of being the long suffering black praying woman mm. or, or, and I'm going to be personal here for a minute. I have had friends say to me, and I know I'm going to send this to one particular person that I know. So they know that they're getting pulled on right now that, you know, when I was in my evangelical days and hoping that I would get a husband and get married. Well, you know, you just can serve God. You don't need to be married. Hmm. You know, and, and so it's this either you get denuded in evangelicalism, you don't get to be seen as, you know, sexual or anything else, or you get to be seen as overly sexual. So there's no winning for black women in evangelicalism. Wow. And Jamar is like, I don't even know what to say now. <laughs> this is the part in the sermon where you just stand up and fold your arms and just... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's the truth. Yeah. I mean, y'all it's know it's the truth. truth. It's, yeah. it's very true because you don't you don't get seen the same way. And I mean, I, I can think about a lot of, you know, I'm not going to call her name either, but I'm thinking about the young woman who gave her dad a purity certificate. And we know who I'm talking about. And I'm just like, that doesn't play out for us like this. It, you know, it might play off in this one-off kind of thing because you look, you know you know, peculiar, but it doesn't play out like this for most black women in, in white churches. You get the same dudes pushing up on you, but you're also seen as either, you know, the woman that nobody's going to get married to or the woman who is, you know, too, too holy. And I need to come to you for all of my prayers for a husband and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How did Trump, you mentioned some, some more recent examples how did Trump in 2016 shift things for black women in, in this conversation about white evangelical racism? 
He shifted it in a lot of ways because basically the black women that you saw around him were actually caricatures. They didn't look like real black women that anybody knew. They had bad wigs and they, you know, and they said how much they loved Donald Trump. And they played this kind of role where they amplified black phrases and things in order to be the black sidekick. Right. So that was one thing. But I think he made it worse because essentially you never saw, you know, outside of Omarosa and then she left pretty early on. You never saw a black woman in real authority. Right. You, you saw black women as being ancillary to that whole project of racism because whiteness was important. And so he would get the, you know, the, the most beautiful white women he could possibly get. I mean, besides his wife, it was, you know, uh, Hope Hicks, all these people, everybody. I mean, even um, Kellyanne Conway had to get some work done on her face to be able to stay up and enjoy. I mean, everybody had a certain kind of aesthetic. And I think that aesthetic is really important to evangelicalism. I cannot stress this enough. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that I hint at at the book. But I don't really come out and say, and I think there's a certain kind of aesthetic that white evangelicalism wants you to have. So whether we're talking about Hillsong or we're talking about Southern Baptists, you know, with Beth Moore, or we're talking about, you know, these uh, other, you know, right, the the emergent churches or anything else. People have a certain kind of aesthetic. Black women do not fit that aesthetic. Black men only fit that aesthetic insofar as they are seen as exotic and spiritual, right? Mm. And, and then they are allowed to come into the camp, but hopefully they got wives already or something because we don't want them running off with our women. Mm. I, I'm so glad you named that, that yeah. aesthetic yes. Yes. part, right? Because yeah. of those, I mean, black women in particular have been dealing with this for centuries, you know, yes. hair straighteners and skin bleaching and this mm-hmm. idea that you have to fit a certain mold in order to be, attractive, you know, in a sort of white centered, white standard kind of way. Um, so I'm just glad you're naming these things that 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 are so prevalent. But I want to go back to this question that 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 sort of haunts and echoes throughout the book, this 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 question of will they, meaning white evangelicals, allow racism to continue to taint their faith, or will they reject it? And the question is, do you believe this trajectory on can get worse, is getting worse. Yes. Yes. And, you know, when I wrote this book, it was the summertime of 2020. It was already bad. We hadn't even gotten to January 6th yet. Mm. See? And and so, you know, I can say, yes, I think it's gotten worse. I think that part of the reason why it's gotten worse is that it's not just about, you know, what evangelicals believe is that they believe that Trump still won and that they're willing to listen to the lie. It's the reasons why they believe in Q, right? And that's a whole nother kind of thing that we can't even get into here. Um, it's the ways in which they are determined to go down with the ship in a lot of different kind of ways. And although we see a lot of people who are turning because they're reading your book, they're reading my book, they're reading Kristen Kobe's Dumais book, they're now starting to read the, the biblical womanhood book. There's, there's things that people are starting to see that are coming out. But I think we still have a recalcitrant middle that is not coming out and they're not moving no matter what, because they enjoy the position that they have. Now, Mm. the X factor, which is going to get everybody, is the virus. Because Mm. the virus is the leveler and whether or not they care if if it's over 30 percent of evangelicals and what is it like 49 percent of white men, Republican men that don't want to get a shot right right now. Mm. (sighs) The, the numbers are going to catch up with you. And mm. this is where I think that the problem is going to come in for these folks is because, you know, there's only so far, if you're not going to wear a mask and you think that's about your religious freedom and your freedom, you don't want to get a vaccine because you think that that's the mark of the beast in some kind of way. Or they put in a microchip in you, whatever it is, or you just don't believe in it because you think you're too healthy and that's all you need to be. Then I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I think that, you know, fate ends up catching up to you. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that is uh, something that we've been seeing. You know, I live in Florida, so it's something. I've oh, seen. my God. <laughs> Even in our leadership Ooh. and the Christian messaging and and all these things. And, you know, we talk so much about white evangelicals. And as we think about white evangelicals and their racism, you know, I think my final question would be, 
you know, what should black Christians take away from this? Because at the end of the book, you talk about how if you're an evangelical, meaning white evangelical, and you read this, that you should really take a, a look around you to see what whiteness has wrought. And what should black Christians do? What should these black evangelicals who are remaining in these churches and these circles and faith spaces, how should we read this book and then go and do in the world? You know, there's this little this little meanness that, that you know, somebody does something crazy and they go run and, and they start playing the music and they run. I, I, I kind of want to say that, actually, because I was like, I, I really want you to think about that that message is for you, too. It's not just a message that I'm saying to white evangelicals. What has this wrought in your life? Do you feel that you are fruitful? Can you be fruitful in the ground that you have planted yourself in right now in those churches where they ignore the gifts that God has given you? Or they've told you that you can only do certain ministries in that church. Or they've told you that you you can't marry that person. Or that you tried to talk to somebody across the color line and they ain't paying no attention to you in that church, right? You know, even though you know they might have been attracted to you, but they weren't going to talk to you. I have been there. Okay, so I'm just saying there's a lot of ways in which black evangelicals have to wrestle with the end of my book too. And mm. I'm not saying you need to leave, but what I am saying is, is that if you are not being fed, if you are feeling like you have not reached your fullest potential of what God can do in you and through you and working you to his good pleasure, then why are you there with those people? Mm. Why do you continue to allow yourself to be in that space? And I think, you know, that's the whole point of leave loud, right? is that you need to be able to tell people. And then maybe you also need to share with people what has happened, right? You may need to share with them about what what it is that you've learned from this book if you read it. Because I think that's actually the bigger thing is like to say, you know, I thought everything was okay, but it's really not okay. And I think that's actually very important to say. Because I think that for a lot of white evangelicals, they see their black brothers and sisters in the pews every Sunday and they think we're fine. That's right. But we're not. I'm I'm torn on this question because I, I it, you know, to an increasing degree, I've sort of taken up your call and your action step as someone who was deeply embedded in in white evangelicalism yeah. for a time, and now has since you know asked those questions. What you know, what has it wrought for me? Mm-hmm. <sighs> And so I'm ambivalent about this question because I'm increasingly like, you know, I'm done, not in the sense of I don't care about you anymore, but I'm not spending Mm -hmm. my time and my energy on this group, trying to persuade this group of Mm -hmm. people. But at the same time, I do know it's a question that's top of mind for a lot of folks. I mean, is there anything we can do to sort of move the needle on white evangelicalism, however you want to chop it up, denominationally, congregations, whatever, or is it simply, you know, kicking the dust off your sandals and moving on? I think it's kicking the dust off your sandals and moving on. But, but here's the other thing, calling them out. Mm. That I Mm. think is really, really, really important because the thing about white evangelicalism is this, they don't like to be told who they really are. And so one of the reasons why I did the book was because I I know that I'm in a position that I can say these things that, you know, my, my advisor, who the other person I dedicated the book to was Walter Hollenweger, who is a big Swiss theologian. And I'll never forget what he told me when I was working on my PhD. He said, listen, don't, don't even bother getting a, a license in ministry because they can never take your PhD away from you because you earned that. And I was like, you're right. And I, that has proven true time and time and time again, that that is a thing that they cannot take away from you. And so uh, no matter how mad they are at me, I'm at Penn. And so like, come at me, bro. I, I you know, what you going to do? I mean, you can't, you can't sit me down from ministry. You can't reprimand me. You can't tell me to quit talking because I have a platform. And so I think, you know, I've, I've watched you, Jamar, in both of these spaces, right? I'm watching you walk out of these spaces. And I was really glad when you did, because I was like, that brother don't know how they're using him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even when you're trying to talk to them about being anti-racist, they were using you to promulgate the same kind of messages. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, you see that now and you and you know what that has brought on. But I think there's a lot of people like you out there 
who are, you know, mean well, who are good Christians, who believe in themselves, who are for, you know, I would call race men and women, right? They, they won't take care of black people. But at the same time, they feel this loyalty to people who don't feel that same loyalty to them. Yes. And I think that's what's really important here is that I had to really start searching through. I lost a lot of evangelical friends because I was like, I got to let these folks go. Now I have a few left. But those are people who are real people with me and they understand me. But I've also watched my white evangelical friends leave because mm-hmm. they've gotten tired of all of this mess. And so I think that evangelicalism is at this, this moment of frisure. Now, I don't know that it's ever going to end. But what I do think is going to happen is that they are rapidly becoming even more of a fringe group than they would have liked to have thought themselves before because they just thought that they were persecuted. Now they really fringe. Wow. Searing words. Dr. Anthea Butler, the book is White Evangelical Racism. Y'all go get it. Go get it wherever books are sold. Dr. Butler, thank you so much for coming on Pass the Mic. This has been incredible. Thank you all for having me. I really wanted to talk to y'all. You you know why. So (laughs) thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, thank you for for not pulling any punches, speaking the truth from with a scholarly lean. Uh, we, we, We appreciate you. You're one of the ones that, that, that we look to and learn from and I think is a, a helpful guiding light in this season. So we did definitely appreciate you giving you your roses and your flowers. Oh, thank you. Right now. I will take them. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, once again, everybody, uh, thank you for tuning in. You can follow Dr. Butler on Twitter at Anthea Butler. Please pick up the book White Evangelical Racism. You can follow Jamar, Mr. Blue Check Verified at Jamar Tisby. You can follow me at your own risk at Burns Clan on Twitter and Instagram. And we would also like for you to uh, follow The Witness as well, The Witness BCC and thewitnessbcc.com. And if you'd like to support, if you say, man, you're doing such great work and I want to support, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash pass the mic. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time right here on Pass the Mic. Peace. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.